Strange events involve Frank and Joe Hardy and the mystery which shrouds an ancient treasure, the golden head of the pharaoh Ramaton IV. First, a cryptic, unsigned warning from Egypt. Second, the ghost of a bloodthirsty pirate of the 18th century, who, according to legend, haunted nearby Whalebone Island years ago and recently has reappeared. It's quite a sentence. The owner of the million-dollar golden pharaoh's head claims it was aboard the freighter Katawa, which sank not far from Whalebone Island. But suspicious developments indicate that Mamet Zufar may be trying to defraud the shipping line's insurance company. Frank and Joe enthusiastically accept the challenge of their famous detective father to assist him in investigating the complex case for transmarine underwriters. A puzzling clue leads the Hardys to Whalebone Island, where they almost lose their lives in a violent explosion. Someone desperately wants to get rid of them, but who? Is it the ghostly pirate? Frank and Joe's perilous scuba diving search in the ocean depths off the island yields electrifying discoveries that cap the climax of this exciting mystery. Yeah, I'm, I love this. And I love the illustration, too. But yeah, he, every time they find him in this book, he's just knocked He's out. knocked out. Tied up. No, yeah, you don't. I mean, that's. I've never found my dad knocked out. It's 2019 and everyone gets a podcast. Mine is the Hardy Boys Drink Book. Each week, I sit down with creative and hilarious people to talk about a book in the Hardy Boys Mystery Series. Then we have one of our favorite local bartenders mix us up a custom cocktail to sip while we read. Today, I'm joined by returning guest, Adrian Bishop, and our custom cocktail was provided by Sam Nordstrom at St. Paul's Tavern on Colfax. It's a classic old-fashioned that'll make you feel like you just found sunken treasure. Get stuffed in a sarcophagus, crack the world's easiest code, and casually brush off the appearance of a Nazi in The Hardy Boys Drink Book Number 17, The Secret Warning, featuring Adrian Bishop. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here with returning guest, Adrian Bishop. Hello, Adrian. Hello. Thanks for having me. And today, Adrian and I are talking about the 17th book in the Hardy Boys Mystery Series, The Secret Warning. Adrian, start listing the things again that are in this book. There's a lot. I just remember being excited. And maybe that's the key for me. I'm learning about myself. Maybe you just need to throw everything you can at me. Yeah. And I'm entertained. Yeah. And that's all. Like, it doesn't matter what happened. Don't know. I just I, know that it was exciting. There were so many different there things was, packed in. Well, and Nazis cap it off. A little bit about the Hardy Boys Mystery Series. The Hardy Boys Mystery Series was written by F.W. Dixon in the 1920s. F.W. Dixon is better known as the inventor of synthetic pearls. The books were rewritten in the 1950s because they were um, a little too racist. The boys were too uh, uh, poor, I think, in the original books. And then they cut about 100 pages out of each of the mysteries. Can you imagine what was cut out of this book? This book has everything. Every single thing what in it. What possibly could have been cut? I can't, I can't imagine. Um, well, that, that's a great place to start. I think we can just dive right into the story if great. you want. The boys are watching TV. Kind of a lame way to start such an amazing mystery. Yeah. But I think it sets the tension so low. Yeah, that's, that's the regular life to which hopefully they will return. Yes, Hopefully. But then at the end of every book, they get this like junky itch for the next mystery. And then the next mis- name of their next mystery shows up in italics. Yeah, they've gotten good at, at dropping because they, they do that early on. Like yeah, in the first like, quarter of the, the book. Tower mis- the first one, the Tower Treasure, all the way through to the most recent one. Always be promoting. Yeah, that's great. That's part. That's that's Dixon's motto. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. I, I did want to say in the beginning of, in, uh, of this book. Something was cleared up because last time I was on, it was okay. book two, I think. Yeah, it was way back the in the Cliff day. House. Yeah, and um, and and there, I remember discussing, you know, the the phenomenon of an internationally 
famous, famous detective. detective. Well, yeah. here, he's not referred to as an internationally famous detective. He's been downgraded. Yeah, well, now he's nationally known as a crack private investigator. You're right. His, his reputation has declined. It's declined. Well, we have also have established this theory that Benton Hardy is a master criminal who's running a racket These are and all... using his voice to run interference. So the idea that he had to like bring down his rep from internationally known character. <laughs> that makes to, total like... sense. The number of times that he is knocked <laughs> unconscious, tied up, you know, it's like, who else would do that? Yeah. It starts with the boys getting a package, right? There's somebody who delivers a package from Egypt uh, for their dad. Right. And they open it, even though their dad is the kind of guy who people would totally send, like, anthrax to, because he has so many enemies. But they just open it, no problem. Sure. Um, and there's a note that says, beware the pharaoh's head, doomed to all who seek it. These boys get a, a threatening note every week. Right. This is not new to them. They don't even seem phased by it. But a curse on an ancient Egyptian relic. Immediately. That's a new, it's a new threat. Yeah. I mean, and I think that would have been a great place to go with this story. But we don't. We don't. No. Yeah, I was really hoping. That first page, I was like, oh my God, Egypt, mummies, I know, you wrote it tombs. in the tombs. There could be a mummy. You there wrote could be a mummy. The, there wasn't. There wasn't a mummy in this, everybody. I'm sorry. <laughs> the closest we get is a sarcophagus. <laughs> they go to radio their dad, who is on another one of his business trips with Sam Bradley, right? I made a note of that because they couldn't reach him. And I, I marked it. It says, he must be away from his hotel or wherever he's staying. Well, where where does he stay? I mean, okay. Well, I don't know. In other books, he's like gone. He went to New York and he pretended to be a homeless person. Just stayed on the street. And stayed on the streets until he found the homeless guy he was looking for. And That's he, amazing. And then he chased that guy on a train and he threw him off of it. Uh-huh. And then that guy died. And then he knocked himself out in the back of a train car <laughs> somehow. <laughs> okay. I guess, yeah. All right. <laughs> um, but they beam out codes to each other. I just wrote, this is all so strange. And they're like, let's get a hold of dad. And then they run up to the shortwave radio and start zapping out messages. Right. And then Captain Early shows up. Does he just come to the house? Yep, just showed up. It was raining. His uh, his hurricane injury, or his, <laughs> no, sorry, the hurricane weather alerted yeah. his leg war injury. injuries, yeah. And he showed up. And it was Captain a war. Early, he was like a crack naval uh, commander in the Second World War. I really liked him. Yeah, I thought he was you a know? cool character. Yeah. He wasn't uh, like a character character. He didn't have a bunch of wacky traits. No, he's, he's eccentric. He's eccentric. But friendly, yeah. mostly, you know. And he's got a fancy cane. That's very important. Yes. But when he pulled up, he saw a man outside. Yeah, he said, there's a guy, there's a guy standing on your property. Guess the only reason I mentioned it is because he looked weird. Really? <laughs> he Did, just you didn't like, mention it? He got a prowler outside. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, but the guy looked especially suspicious because yes. he's clearly wearing a disguise. Definitely. That, they said there was something weird about his eyes, which I don't... I think they were referring to the scar. <laughs> oh. That's what I... Because he has a scar, which tugs on his eye, something. Uh, he said that somebody broke into his uh, lighthouse that he lives in on Whalebone Island. Is that right? Or does he live in a... Captain Early? He lives up the road. He lives in another town, not far away. He lives alone on a house on the coast, north of Barment Bay. Yeah, yeah. He writes books on sea lore. I miss Sea lore. That. I didn't know what that was. <laughs> like the history of the sea, <laughs> legends of the sea? Just, yeah, lore. Lore. Okay. Okay. And he asked, are you fellas home alone at one point? Like kind of scoping out the house, which I thought was a weird... I didn't know who he was at that point. I was like, wow. But, Why is he asking? Yeah. Laura and Aunt Gertrude have gone to a concert. No idea what concert. I think that's great because if your husband is gone constantly, staying mm-hmm. in a hotel or wherever he's staying... With his friend Sam Bradley. With his friend was- Sam... <laughs> Who takes a this lot long of time companion? Yeah, uh, you need to get out and yeah, get and some culture, and they did. Have some fun. They I went did, to a concert. That was great. But Captain Early, so somebody tried to rob his house, right? And they didn't take any. 
but they keep breaking into his house. Yeah. Like, yeah, several times. So he's going to stay... He stays the night at the Hardy Boys, right? Yeah. Yeah, he just crashes They there. give him some pajamas, gets into, gets into a hilarious row with, oh, the, with, yeah. the, with, the, with the aunt. They do also see Red Roger's ghost. He tells them about the pirate Red Roger. That's right. There's killed. another sighting while they're, while they're there. The so house. the guy came back. The guy is lurking around outside dressed as Red Roger's. Okay. He was killed in a sea fight. And then in the middle of the night, uh, they hear a big clatter from downstairs. And Aunt Gertrude has attacked uh, Captain Early, whose, whose first name is... They call him Pearly, right? Pearly Early. Oh, I forgot that he tells this whole story. Right. About Tang, the guy who was the lighthouse keeper who went crazy because of the ghost. Yep. He tells them all that before they go to bed. Right after the war. Yeah, right after the war. But in the middle of the night, they hear this scream. Aunt Gertrude has attacked uh, Captain Early. And they try to explain to him, like, he's our guest and everything's fine. He's like, I put a note on the mirror to let anybody know that, like, if I, uh, if they came home late, that, like, hey, the guy sleeping in the guest bedroom is (laughs) not... Uh, intruder who went to go put on pajamas and crawl into bed in the guest bedroom. But anyway, yeah, so she beats the crap out of him. And then the next morning, uh, when everything's all fine, a guy shows up wanting to beat the hell out of Fenton Hardy. Yeah. He just, like, kicks in the door, right? That was really out of left field. Just, just, and he barges right in, yeah. They're, like, eating breakfast. <laughs> just, bam. Where's your dad? I'm gonna kick his ass. What? <laughs> I'm calling the cops. <laughs> so much happening so fast. And he's like, wait, who are you? What do you want? He says, you'll find out. And mighty soon. And then the two might have come to to blows, but then Joe comes in. And then the captain limps in. And then this guy yells, you tell Fenton Hardy that if Gus Brock ever finds him, he's in for trouble. And then he runs away. Yeah, that's weird. That's just weird. Did he? So was he threatened? Did he think he was outnumbered at that point? I wasn't sure what. Why, why he, he didn't fight Frank? Just he thought, oh, two teenage boys and an elderly man. I <laughs> I'm out of here, <laughs> but I'm gonna leave, leave my good. name That's... in case they call the cops. <laughs> yeah, my name. And then Captain Early, they're like, "Who? What, did you know him?" And he's like, "No." Wait, yes, I do. Right, right, yeah. He remember he doesn't know who at all who he is, and then he's like, "Wait a second! Now that I think about it, I know." Exactly. I've got other problems with Captain Early's memory, which I'll come back to later. Okay. And uh, apparently, Gus Brock was the bosun third on a, on the last destroyer that he commanded, and he had a terrible temper and had him up before the mast many times. Don't that's that pre- that's pretty cool. And uh, believe I heard later he was court-martialed for threatening an officer. Well, I believe that. Yeah. We find out later that this guy works for like a private salvage yeah, company. Yeah, right. Everybody's in that game now. Yeah. Everyone's Nazis. in the salvage game. It's the fad this summer. She's like, who was that? And they're like, his name's Gus Brock. Uh, she gives him a gimlet stare. Mrs. Hardy uh, does oh. on page 17. I love that phrase. That's so great. She gives him a gimlet stare. I which also... I guess means like cool and green. I also I also underlined one of Gertrude, Gertrude's Aunt Gertrude. God, it's, her name is so weird. Yeah, Aunt Gertrude's lines right here. This modern underwater craze is entirely too dangerous. Anyhow, what <laughs> modern underwater craze? Like, <laughs> are the, are the kids hardy? are going and getting like little private submersibles and. <laughs> Everyone's tricking out their hot rods. Yeah, they're diving down to wrecks and just, you know, too dangerous. partying. First thing you learn when you study ocean lore, so. We get our first leap in lizards on page 18. Sometimes there oh. are as many as five in a book. Oh, But uh, yeah, I think this might be our only one. Okay. Um, I should have, like, we should have to, like, take a shot when there's a leap. Folks at home, every Love time that. there's a leap in lizards. Everybody drink shot. right now. Everybody drink. Can I make them drink by saying leaping lizards? Or it has to be in the book. It has to be in the book. Yeah, yeah. otherwise you're going to like hurt people. Yeah. It's too much power. Okay. Um, they get a treasure map. 
Right. Does that just get mailed to them? Yep. Just, <laughs> just mailed to them um, with an X on it. <laughs> That's it. That's it. No clues. Somebody sent them the end of a different mystery. There's, no, <laughs> there's nothing more enticing than a map with an X on it. I mean, you got to go. <laughs> we got to go to where that X is. <laughs> I love that there's so many things going on at this point. They don't know <laughs> that these things are related. They get the map and it says R. Rogers, Whalebone Island. And they're like, okay, well, that's related. <laughs> Yeah, well, there must be some reason. We'll figure it out. By the end, we'll we'll figure this out. That's what I like about this book. It's exciting. It's a mystery. It's multiple mysteries. And then even after you've read it, it's a mystery just unraveling what you just read. Yeah. It's like a mystery on top of a mystery. And the things that characters should know that they don't know when they should know them at different points in the story makes you really understand that they cut a lot out. They go to meet Fenton. They have a plan to go meet Fenton on Whalebone Island. They, like, radio him. And they're like, look, we found this map. It's got an X on it. We got to get out there. Yep. And is he going to take his own boat or something? Um, yeah. Yeah, he did. He rented a boat. Exactly. In town. And on the way out to Whalebone Island, they run into the Napoli, which has Chet and Tony on it. They were just fishing. Though. That's, that's not... That's not the big deal. Immaterial. That's not when they go have fun. No, there's, there, is, there is a reason that that matters, though. Oh, why? Well, <clears throat> okay. This is kind of a long diatribe that i'm gonna go on here absolutely that's what this show's about okay so on page 21 okay during this this exchange with chet and tony old longtime friends of the hardy boys chet is disappointed because they were on a fishing trip and he didn't catch anything and he had had his mouth all set for some nice broiled bass for lunch and joe begins this is the first of a long string in this book of fat joke harassments against chet welcome to the podcast welcome back adrian yeah i don't know if you've forgotten but this is a running theme (laughs) it is they are monsters to chet martin he pats him right on the stomach and says but think of the pounds you've saved now that's pretty cute but let me just (laughs) let me just (laughs) bring up some evidence here because i've compiled a list okay of every fat insult in this book hearing them all in a row is gonna hurt i think we just need to Page 31, Joe chuckled. A spook wouldn't stand a chance against a beefy bruiser like you. Now, that's a backhanded compliment. Yeah, but it was backhanded pretty hard. (laughs) It was. Page 44, Joe chuckled. You put away enough lamb chops at Captain Early's to hold you for a week. Page 60. What's that, breakfast or lunch? Frank asked with a grin. Iola laughed. With Chet, there's no hard and fast distinction. So now they're getting his sister involved (laughs) in the harassment. 62, two pages later, at the party, just as long as he doesn't wet chaps, Chet's appetite, Joe needled, everyone laughed. 72, Iola giggled. I bet even Chet has a canary's appetite by comparison. So there, there was actually a gap after this, a good 30 pages before. Where Chet was not harassed. Where Chet doesn't get harassed. Page 104, what cooks, Chet asked, and I wrote a note. That's an unfortunate choice of words on his part. He, <laughs> he stepped right into that. Yeah, one. yeah. Not lunch, if that's what you were hoping, says Joe. Uh, uh, now on page 108, Chet's revenge. Chet actually kicks Joe yeah. in the butt, but then he falls into a cave. So even when Chet is trying <laughs> he, he finds to get adventure. his it's he, he comes up smelling yeah. like roses, and Chet looks like a fat slob. Page 111. Uh, it'll give you food, food for thought when we turn in tonight in place of your usual bedtime snack. 116. For once, Chet seemed to lack appetite. There you go. That was the narrator getting in on it. Those are all... You're right. That, that wasn't, wasn't even the Hardy Boys. That was the narrator. <laughs> that was Dixon. Even I think he's fat. Yeah. <laughs> now, oh. I may be a little sensitive to this because in the past, not right now, obviously, you know, I look fantastic. But right. in the past, you know, I, I have carried 
a few extra pounds. Sure. And, uh, I've well, carried more than a few. Oh, ha- heavy trials? Yes. Because, listen, from where I'm sitting, the Wefso brothers are a lot like the Hardy brothers. Uh, you guys <laughs> are pretty much perfect in my mind. And yes, I don't know if anybody's seen us. We're spelt Adonis's. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and so normal folks like us <laughs> over here on this side of the table. The we, Chet Mortons of the we're world. We're the Chet Mortons of the world. I identify with Chet. Also, they don't give them very much good stuff to eat in this one. So no, there was nothing, really there was nothing to no offset. Like... Lamb chops, okay, meringue pie, he got that. That's about it. I know. You want those long, like, descriptions I of really, the meals. I miss that. If I miss that, too. That if I'm like... going to have my... Avatar Chet being salted nonstop. I at least want to know what he's what that he's, he's enjoying his meal. Yeah, I, I, maybe it's they took all of the meals out and replaced them with new adventures after this first harassment. They tell Chet and Tony about the ghost of Whalebone Island, and then they get a radio call from Gertrude that uh, they found Captain Early's cane. That's what it is. It's not an emergency. She calls all, <laughs> called them as if it was an emergency. But they literally just found Captain Early's cane that he left at the house. Okay. So did he accidentally take? Yeah, he took a he took Fenton's one of Fenton's walking stick. Why does Fenton need a walking stick? Uh, well, to look fashionable. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, if you're going walking down by the shore, you might want bring, a, bring stick. a stick. But you, you wouldn't think it would be easily confused for your nice ornate with an carved, ornate yeah carved carved cane. cane. Well, that's okay. Uh, also, them. canes are different sizes, so if they're they must have been the same height. Otherwise, Captain Early would have been like, "What the hell?" Yeah, that's um, true. Okay, yeah, that's when they're like just about out there. Yeah, then there's lights, red lights. Yeah, flashing. blinking, and they're like, "That's Morse code." As soon as they see it, their brains register it, probably like reading. But the thing is, they saw it blink once, and then knew that was the beginning of a more because otherwise they and would grabbed have been a like, pencil and paper and pencil. Or do, did they just? No, I think they, it just said they. Uh, Frank murmured. He spelled out the letters of the message as they flashed. He just knows. Yeah, they didn't. That's write so. It down. Co- I mean, that's so cool. But that means that it blinked, and they were like, "Look, a light." They probably were like, "G E R." Oh, okay. They're spelling it's danger. Danger. It could yeah. have been something else, though. Could have I been. Guess. It should have been anger. Yeah, anger. Keep away. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Or just grr. 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 But anyway, they ignore the shit out of that. Yep. They don't care at all. No. They're and more I, just, it's just another mystery of who's flashing lights at them. And that wasn't the secret warning, actually. Even though on the cover, you yeah. see them in the sleuth, which is a pretty cool boat in this illustration. Yeah, and this is the first time I've seen it with the like lettering on it and everything. Yeah, it's a nice boat. And there in the distance is the lighthouse with the red flash. Spelling out danger. It's right on the cover. So it's somebody who's on the island. Right. He's saying <clears throat> in the lighthouse. They get to shore and they um, they try to find their, their dad, but they just find his campfire and radio. Right. Oh, and they're like, maybe he went to the lighthouse to investigate. And Chet is the smart one who's like, yeah, maybe he was telling us not to come to the island. He knew you knew Morse code. You're yeah. like the only people who would see Morse code and know exactly what to mean. No criminal yes. would assume that would work for teenage boys. Why would they assume that would work for teenage boys? That is kind of odd. You'd be like, teenage boys don't just know more. They they might even at one point learn Morse code, but teenage boys don't know Morse code like that. So they, they have to – So okay, so it's dark enough that you see the light from the lighthouse. Yes. But light enough that whoever's in the lighthouse sees their boat coming and says, I know. I'll send them a Morse code signal. Yes. So it's got to be Fenton. You'd think the only person who would know, one, that they're coming at that time yeah, and that they know Morse code. And who's tied up in, in unconscious the in the lighthouse. With a thin trickle of red from his scalp, which has clotted across his left temple. Very specific. Yeah. Uh, I just read that because I was like, oh, my God, they hit him. Whoever knocked him out 
or if he knocked himself out, he <laughs> hit himself hard enough. He's gotten good over the years. He can to hit break himself the skin on yeah. the temple. Yeah, but he he knows like precisely how hard to hit himself in the head to knock himself to knock out. Himself for out. Real. They soak a handkerchief in cold brine and apply it to his forehead and chafe his wrists. Which is that like uh, I don't, I to didn't... chafe his wrists? Is that like uh, what is that called when you? Twist there is something arm about there is something about that in in, in medicine. In, increased circulation in medical lore. Frank Joe, hi Chet. The detective gave him a rueful smile. And then slowly raise himself to a sitting position. Uh, yeah, I'm, I love this. And I love the illustration, too. But yeah, he, every time they find him in this book, he's just knocked he's out. He's knocked out. Tied up. No, yeah, you don't. I mean, that's. I've never found my dad knocked out. If you are unconscious for more than like 30 seconds to a minute, yeah. it can start to do very serious brain damage. Wow. Which is why the Hardy <laughs> Boys, I think, uh, make the decisions they do. They've been knocked out for long periods of time, lots of times. So they're... Yeah, they're they're in a particular sort of brain yes, frame, uh, sort of a, a fugue state. I also <laughs> think that like they don't go to school ever, but they have all of these adventures. Yeah, and they're permanently seventeen and eighteen years old. Yeah, but I wonder if that's just like in these two oh. delusional people's uh, brothers' minds, and they just run over, they run all over town making a mess of it. That's very good. Uh, solving mysteries. I'd watch that movie. They're constantly escaping from the institution that's <laughs> yeah, trying to take exactly. care of them, where they're... The criminals who have them tied up, or nurse, you mean? Nurse Gertrude. Gertrude. Yeah. <laughs> nurse Gertrude. Why can't I say her, her name? Her name is hard to say. Nurse Gertrude. Nurse Gertrude. Administers their, uh, their medicines. Uh, so uh, also here we discover that when the Katawa sank... Did yes. you talk about that? The Katawa. Yeah, that's what... Uh, that's what this whole mystery about the pharaoh, pharaoh's head, so the, the pharaoh's head is. It was being shipped to the that? United States right. on a boat called the Katawa, which I think, which I assumed was from Japan or from the seems East or like something. it. But anyway, the but it was uh, coming from Egypt. It was coming from Egypt. It sank, and several of the crew drowned. Yeah, we never mentioned that again. No, they don't bring that up again. Like it hasn't been found. They think it might have been salvaged from the stolen junk already because there's been. Apparently, somebody's trying to sell this relic yes. already. Okay. He's gotten some tips that somebody's trying to sell it. So he's like, either illicit salvagers already went down and stole it from the shipwreck, yep. or it was stolen before it sank in Beirut, or even or earlier even. than that in France. Right. Or even that he never sent the real. Um, and then he says, how come you're so interested in the legend of Whalebone Island, Dad? And he says, because I have a feeling it may tie in with this case. Yeah, they always tie together. Right. It's always the same case. All right. They just start poking around the island, right? Yeah. They learn about the sunken treasure, and while they're looking around, suddenly there's massive explosions, right? Yeah. Uh, well, that's the, there was an explosion when they got to the X from the map. Yes. So you go, that's they how they the follow map the map. In. They follow the treasure map. They get to the X, and right when they get to the X, boom. boom. Uh, Joe's words are drowned out by a ter- terrific blast, and the left wall of the ravine exploded with a shattering force. And I think this is a good time to check in with Bingo for the first time. <clears throat> Great. Boys haven't been tied up yet. Fenton has been knocked out. Is that on here? I don't know. They're all different. And attempted all... murder. We this bo- counts as attempted murder. Oh, yes. There's been sure. multiple attempted murders. I'm checking. Um, there's checking. a shipwreck. I have a shipwreck. Oh, nice. No gunfights yet. Has there been sabotage yet? Not yet. There's a, it just says Fenton Hardy on here. Does that That's mean... my free square. Oh, so I Because he appears in every single book. So I'm checking that. Yeah. Great. Mrs. Hardy left the house. I have that one. Nice. And I have attempted murder. That's great. Oh, I have one of my favorite ones. A ghost. In quotes. Whoa. I'm doing well. Secret codes. 
not really. Morse code, code, Morse code is, is not secret. secret. Okay. Nope. I don't have respectful use of Spanish yet. No made up countries. I have a square that I that is kind of exciting. A, okay. A vagrant with mental health issues. Well, we've run into a lot of those. Is the thing there was Hobo Johnny. There was Sandy who sells seashells down by the seashore. Pretzel Pete was he there? Was father? Pretzel Pete? Yeah, he was one of those. <laughs> um, we just met a lot of okay. people who choose to live off the grid and are clearly in need of some sort of counseling. I have treasure. That's I'm checking that because we got the gold oh, yeah. head. Well, that's what I've got so far. Great. And we'll add more as it happens in the story. Uh, they're fine after the explosion. Sure. Nothing happens. No. Everybody's okay. It just it was a trap. Yeah, so they head back to the lighthouse. And <clears throat> um, I love this. Not until they reached the lighthouse did Joe realize that one of their party was missing. Hey, where's Chet? Yep. Didn't you even just... look around. No. <laughs> he gets there and he's like about to make a fat joke and then he's like, where's Chet? <laughs> yeah. Tell him to come back. I have a joke. And so they start looking around for for Chet. They move stealthy as Indians, which I, I wrote, no. Like, still not okay. Uh, well, okay. I mean, even if it's positive. That's the <laughs> thing about racism, about racist stereotypes, right. is that even if they're positive, stealthy uh-huh. as Indians, though, sure. they, they retrace their steps. And they finally run into, there's a swing. He butts into solid flesh and he feels a... Joe feels a stick swish past his ear and whacks him hard in the shoulder. He goes down in a tangle of arms and legs just as Frank snapped on a flashlight. So Chet, probably knowing it was Joe, just hit him as hard I was, as he I would totally would. Yeah. Crack. Oh, my bad, Joe. <laughs> Didn't mean to hit you as hard as I could. I guess I was hungry. <laughs> oh, yeah. Me, my big fat arms. Um, but anyway, he's like, what did you do? Why did you disappear? And Chet is totally the, smart. He's like, I went back and got the food from the boat. And they're like, why didn't you tell us? He's like, because you wouldn't have let me do that. Right. Which is totally accurate. They would have been like, no, it's not safe. So instead he just did it because it was fine. Yep. And he got the food and now they have food. And for his troubles, he gets a fat insult. You put away enough lamb chops at Captain Early's to hold you for a week. Boom. Boom. But then he's like, I only had four lamb chops. And you're like, well, okay, don't tell us that. It's not helping your case. And then they do say, well, I guess we could all use some food. They, yes. were, they were hungry. They were. And they, it's good that he brought the food. But he's right. They, w- they don't trust him at all. And they don't give him any agency. So they wouldn't have let him. No. No, he, he is there I'm trying to, to, see to look admiringly at them while they adventure. They camp in the lighthouse. Yep. That night. And then the next morning when they get up, do they see another ghost? Do they see the ghost again or something? No, they don't see the ghost. They just kind of talk about, um, they talk about who Gus Brock is, that guy who broke in. Yeah. And smashed up the and, – and, and said he was going to beat up Fenton Hardy. Gus Brock is the chief diver for an outfit called Simon Salvage Company. They tried to get the contract, even put in a ridiculously low bid. But the company has a shady reputation. They've been involved in outright fights and several other unsavory incidents on the salvage jobs. So I advised against them. And then the guy who didn't give them the contract was like, I'm sorry, we can't give you the contract. Fenton Hardy said you were a crook. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so he he's a little mad. He's he, a little he's, mad that he lost that's, a, that's why he came to their house. Yes, it was a pretty sweet job, but yeah. he uh, he didn't get it. But then they go upstairs and they see this note. Oh, yeah. Scrawled into the whitewash of the surface of the stone in the lighthouse. I've seen Rogers again. No mistake this time. He's come back and he's trying to drive me out of my mind. Heaven help me. R.H. Tang, April 17th, 1945. 1945. 
one of the rare dates that will appear in one of these books. Yeah. Because they, they kind of uh. exist. And this is one of the most specifically post-World War II. They kind of had to keep uh, it there. But I, I do want to at some point check to see what the original – actually, I'll just look at the copyright. See what the original copyright was for this book because I'd like to see if it was originally written post – if it was originally World War One stuff that has all been adapted. Well, would there... It would explain why the German isn't treated like a Nazi. Right. <laughs> First copyright was 1938. So I'm pretty sure that all this stuff was interesting. World War One okay. activity that had happened. Okay. And if this book takes was took place in 1938. Uh, okay. Except that they didn't have submarines that could get across the Atlantic back then. Yeah. There's, they updated some technology, but I don't know what they would have. We'll, yeah, they used the term U-boat. We'll get to that. Yeah, anyway. So they find the note from Tang, the guy who went out of the, his mind. They see a boat that's out in the water, really close to Whalebone Island, and they look at the the name on the boat. They're really good at spotting who are on boats and the names of boats from long distances. Yep. And this boat says Simon Salvor, uh, New York, because Simon Salvor has Salvor Salvage. Is that Simon yeah. Salvage? Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a clumsy name. It is. But they just see them out there. They can't figure out what they're doing, right? But they think that one of them, they might be looking out they stay up late so that we can watch the Simon Salvor and maybe find out what it's up to and also keep a lookout for the ghost. In the morning, they find out that the boat is gone. It's yep. like shipped off. And they find out that their camp that they were that Fenton was originally sleeping at has been burned to a crisp. Mm-hmm. His sleeping bag has been burned. His was, food was trampled. That was mean. And his radio has been smashed up, I think. So, and then they find that the, uh, the sleuth or the boat that Fenton took, someone bashed a big hole in it. Yeah, so they, but they don't, you know. That's it, sabotage. So they, the, the boys go back home, but I don't think Fenton does. No. He, he does not like to be at home very much. He doesn't. He would prefer um, to never be at home and to just hang out with Sam. Yeah. Um, this is when we find out that somebody broke into the house looking for something but didn't take anything. Yeah, right. Very similar to what happened to Captain Early. Yep. And let's see. And they think that, oh, and when they get the, when they get home, there's a note. That says, keep away from Whalebone Island next time you won't escape. And there's a drawing of an Egyptian-looking head cool. surmounted by a pharaoh's headdress. So cool. And I was like, one of them is actually a pretty skilled artist pretty if they good. were able to convey that all of that. I'm going to practice drawing that and start putting that on my notes. Yeah, on all your notes. Be like like it's a clue. I'm going to draw the shape of the of the eye. There was a secret oh, glass eye in the last book. Great. No, they go, to meet, they go meet Iola. Yeah. Oh, that's what it is. Their house has been broken into the night before. Right. They have just had this harrowing experience on Whalebone Island. There are a million different mysteries happening. Everything is crazy. So uh, the boys get up in the morning and decide to go to the beach. Yeah, for sure. Just for a swim. Yep. They decide to ditch the entire concept of the mystery and just go to the beach. The next well, their morning, dad's only been knocked out one time. At one point. time so far. The next morning, the two boys decided to go to the beach for a swim. Let's stop off at Chet's and see if he wants to come. Joe suggested. Under a blaze of dazzling sunshine, they started off in their convertible. Presently, they turned up a dirt lane that led to the Morton farmhouse, just outside of Bayport. The two girls were seated on the front porch. Iola, Chet's pixie-faced, dark-haired sister, was Joe's favorite date. She hopped up from the porch swing to greet the visitors. Hi, you two ghost hunters. Her friend Callie Shaw, a pretty brown-eyed blonde girl, chimed in. What's the latest on the whalebone spook? Last we heard, he needed a shave, said Frank, climbing out of the car and smiling at Callie, who he liked very much. Where's Strongheart? Joe asked. At that moment, Chet burst out through the screen door, munching on a large Danish pastry. Somebody call me. Oh, hi, fellows. What's that, breakfast or lunch? Frank asked with a grin. Iola laughed. With Chet, there's no hard and fast distinction. 
Boy, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, those are always fun. I just really like that this happens randomly. And then they're like, aren't you coming to the party? And they're like, what party? Yeah, because they're teenagers. Yeah. and They then, have to have teenage lives. They have to have teenage lives as well. But I like that they're asked if they were invited to the party. The Hardys exchanged blank looks and then recalled Biff's word of mouth invitation during a Sandlot baseball game last Monday afternoon. Yeah, they so were, now I'm wondering, are they 12? I don't <laughs> I don't think they were invited to this party. <laughs> they weren't. They weren't. <laughs> they were like, that, oh, yeah, the, I heard they, they, they haven't about played it. Sandlot baseball for like five years. <laughs> but in the last book, they played baseball at their school's baseball field. Well, that's where you would play. Yeah. And they're like, I guess we did sort of forget. We've been kind of busy. Like, you know, everybody's busy, Joe. They're like, oh, yeah, we will go to the party, I guess. And then Mrs. Morton comes out and says, your aunt just phoned. She asked me to tell you that Mr. Scath from the museum called again. Some man is on his way to the house to see you. She's like, your mom called, that so- or your, your aunt called to tell you that somebody called to tell you that someone's coming to your house. <laughs> Gertrude's really involved in this one. Yes, she She's all up in the business. I think, it's, I think it's great. I wish they would let her off the leash. Yeah, I know. I she mean, should be the third Hardy Boy. We've been starting to refer to her as the third Hardy Really? Boy. Yeah. She, yeah. She, I would like to She's see her really out there. Getting a wetsuit on and diving in there and fighting the Nazi. I'd love to see that. So they speed back to the Hardy home at the corner of High and Elm Street. And they run into the kitchen. And the caller, their visitor, shows up. He is a fat, balding, dark-complexioned man in a white silk suit. He says, is this the Hardy resident? They bring him in. He pulls out his business card. It's ornate. And it says, Mehmet Zufar, dealer in Middle Eastern antiquities and objets d'art. Cairo, Egypt. So cool. Very cool. And they're they're pretty impressed, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. They're like, whoa, the visitor was the owner of the golden pharaoh's head. He's a jerk to them. And he, I think he literally twirls his mustache. Joe found himself staring with fascination at the man's tiny black mustache, which twirled upwards at the end. I just yes. like the idea of Joe way too close to just his face. <laughs> staring at, at his mustache. Blink, blink. <laughs> uh, trying to like reach out and touch it. Yeah. No. But, but they're kind of admiring, you know. I did, I did like that. That they, they weren't immediately like, "Oh, this guy's suspicious." No, they weren't. Which, of course, they should have. They been. should have been. Um, which is, I thought he would be treated with more direct suspicion. No, yeah. Um, but he is a jerk to them, which to me was actually the bigger, a bigger red flag. Than, uh. um, not because there are, have been characters of color who were not the bad guy. They're never portrayed yep. very well. Yeah, like he's portrayed. Oh, they. This must be based off of some character that everyone was familiar with some yeah, trope yeah. that they're like oh yes the egyptian antiques dealer he wears a white silk suit he's fat like uh yeah anyway it definitely played into type he won't allow them to work he's very reasonable he's a very reasonable adult man who's like there is a million dollar insurance policy on the line i need the help of an adult detective right. and yeah. they're like well we're two teenage boys who solve a lot of mysteries we'd love to help he's like no and he's like i am not interested in that i'm interested in, in having your father call me when he is free. And then Chet's like, who was that sourpuss? <laughs> like, no, this is the first reasonable person they've interacted with. And the and the, their reaction is to be like, this guy's a jerk. Yeah. He didn't immediately accept our legitimacy as boy detectives. <laughs> and then they asked to call him a taxi. And he's like, no, my, my car is outside. And he leaves. I don't think he was really that rude to them. He wasn't. No, no he just told them right. what he wanted, gave him his car. Then they go to the museum. To talk to Mr. Scott. Off to the museum. Could have done without this whole scene, actually. It didn't add a lot. No, it's, he just tells them a story about Mr. Zufar came to him, dropped a, an antique, and it shattered. Yeah. 
Which is and how he was for an antique like, dealer. It's kind yeah, of yeah, and how he looked like very. He became very emotional. He said that someone was trying to ruin his reputation. Like this, this like broke him emotionally. Yeah, um, I felt bad for him. Yeah, I did too. He he really played that well. He seems like really like he's going through a lot. His hands are shaking. Yeah, he's sobbing during this whole thing. His mustache is twirling. Oh yeah, <laughs> just on its own, around <laughs> and around. And they said, "Did he strike you as putting on an act?" Frank asked. Which I think is is you know, okay, he did all these things, but did he do it like, oh no, or was he like pretty legitimate about it? Was he quiet and reserved in his motion? And the guy said, I don't think he was putting on an act. Yeah, he seemed he seemed legitimate. Um, and he said he's looked for a good. He was looking for a good detective to help him find uh, who's defaming him. And he said, and I suggested your dad because he's like. Who do I know that's a detective? Right. And he should have, I mean, obviously, you know. Nationally famous. You'd think you'd know he lives in Bayport. You would think that. Yeah. And why so, is he in Bayport? Because Whale Bonot, because the Kadawa sank off the coast of Barmet Bay. So, wow, what a great coincidence. Okay. Yes. I want them to get to this dang beach party. After they thank the curator, they leave the museum, they drive to the beach. After an hour of swimming and sunbathing, topped off by a lunch of hamburgers, soon put even Chet in a more chief, cheerful mood. And then they go, at 4.30, they go and they pick up Iola, Chet, and Callie. Well, Chet's already with them. Hmm. That's weird. And they go to Biff's barbecue. Yeah, everybody's there. Everyone's having a great time. And mm-hmm. Joe gets tackled by a big fun dog. Yeah. Because that's what this book was missing. Hold on. Can we check in with our, is there dogs on the um, big fun dog know, in the, in the, in if you have an animal, because sometimes animals show up and are fun, and it'll be like a scary bat. Or... I'm going to look. No, but I have a shipwreck. Okay. Checking it. And I have a party. Okay. Because they went to a party. Mm-hmm. This, that was a good time checking with bait. Uh, I'm going to check out a uh, party as well. Um, and also, did they go surfing at this party? Mm, no, No, sir. that's right. They just went swimming and sunbathing. They went mm-hmm. to a surf party recently, so uh... that's on here. Uh, a picnic? Does that count? They did eat beans because of Chet's resourcefulness. At the lighthouse. Is See, that a picnic? But no, a picnic is something where you pack food specifically to go to a place and eat it. It's not survival stuff. We've I had see. this conversation before. Uh, it's okay. come up. All right. Have the boys left Bayport? They sure did. They went to Whalebone Island. I don't think they've trespassed yet. There's not been a plane ride where nothing bad happens. Okay. I, we can keep going. Then there's a big fun dog. And the, did you did you love him as much as I did? Well, he's a... Uh, who did he remind me of? Who's the comic book dog? Superman's dog, or you mean like uh, <laughs> no. Marmaduke? Marmaduke. Marmaduke, yeah. He's, he's, yeah he's, he's a lot like Marmaduke. He's a lot like Marmaduke. He's big and wacky. And it seems like Biff may have had that barbecue for the sole purpose of getting someone to take his dog, because he's leaving the country, right? Yeah, he definitely did. I think that's what that was he's all like, about. He's my dog, and hey, who wants my dog? <laughs> The dog paid no attention. He pranced happily about the lawn, barging into several teenagers and spilling their soda pop. Biff pursued his pet, but the Great Dane eluded him as nimbly as a swivel-hipped quarterback. Watch it, Chet! Tony Preto shouted. He's going for the hot dogs! And then the dog eats um, five frankfurters and an entire package of hamburger meat. Down, I'm like, that dog's gonna get sick. Yeah. And then they're like, don't you feed this poor dog? And Biff's like, listen, he has three big meals today already. He tries to convince everybody that he actually doesn't really eat that much. They just saw him eat an entire pound of hamburger. <laughs> this is something that I really need to pull, uh, like, the emergency brakes, though. Okay. And screech to a halt. Yeah. You still haven't told us how you got him, Biff, said Jim Foy, a Chinese youth. Let's talk about Jim uh-huh. Foy. Jim Foy. The boys have a Chinese friend? One, uh... 
He's an American boy, it sounds like. He doesn't seem like he's particularly Chinese. He might be of Chinese to say, might be Chinese-American. But I love that he's described as Jim Foy, a Chinese youth, and then never speaks again. Yeah. Never mentioned but again. But I, I actually appreciated that. I, that he's I, just like... I think they're just... They're diversity casting. Yes. Um, do they say... Let's see. I think Phil Cohen is in this one as well. And normally... Yeah. Phil Cohen, at Biff Frantic's request, ran into the house and got a chain link training collar. The first, like, four times Phil Cohen appears, it says Phil Cohen, a Jewish boy. Yeah. This is the first time that he got to drop the signifier. They're like, you All know right. he's Jewish at you this point. You can tell. Um, but just the fact that the Hardy Boys have a Chinese friend named Jim Foy that we have never <laughs> met before and might not ever meet again. <laughs> and he has one line. He has one line. It has no <laughs> plot significance. It could have been given to anybody. They're like, you know what they need? Chinese friends. <laughs> Make the book more cosmopolitan. I have to imagine that was a later addition. To that the they were like, they need to have a friend who's specifically not just a white kid. Just work it in somewhere. Um, and uh, he convinces – does he convince the boys? He's like, he's a good guard dog. Yep. You should uh, – so they send they – they bring Tivoli home. And I love this whole thing. Laura's like, we got a shipment uh, for your dad. It's down in the basement. It's a big old giant crate, person-sized. <laughs> she does say that, huh? <laughs> she said That's something. amazing. Um, and she's like, yeah, it's like as big as a person. Uh, and then they, she's like, oh, who sent it? She's like, I didn't ask for a copy of the receipt. Yeah. Thanks, well, Gertrude. Like, Great. No, that's Laura. That's Laura Hardy. Oh, that was bad. Oh, she's back. Yeah. But see, oh, in my man, head, Cannon, Laura Hardy spends most of her time pretty tranked up. She's one of those like Valium. Okay. You know, she's in a Valium cloud. Yeah. And uh, most of the time, because if your family was constantly in danger, yeah. your husband's constantly leaving with Sam Bradley. It's a coping skill that you yeah, need you to just, have. Yeah, you know, you go to the concerts, you go see the movies, you take the pills. But she did not get a carbon copy of the receipt. And she, anyway, she's like, anyway, the handwriting was illegible, so it doesn't matter. Aunt Gertrude is not happy about the Great Dane. Laura doesn't seem to care. No, she doesn't. You're right. She's definitely tranked up. Yeah, they go to. They're like, call your dad at the hotel, and he's like, Sam. He and Sam must be out of their rooms because I didn't, I couldn't reach him. Yeah, okay. But they try to lock him in the backyard, and he howls. Oh. And then they try to lock him in the, um, and he howls because there's a prowler. Oh there. yeah, he's being a good guard dog. Yeah. And then they lock him in the basement, and he's like freaking out in the basement. <laughs> and they're like, okay, he does not like being down there. Something about being down there is making him very upset. Could be the person in the box. Well, hey now. Don't spoil the mystery. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, everybody. You can take a shot for that if you want. Okay. Yeah, but anyway, so they, they let finally let – he gets up and he sleeps in like Joe's bed or something like that. They just allow it. Yep. And in the middle of the night, another person tries – they think that another person has tried to break in. Tivoli runs down there. They hear a fight. The intruder gets away, and the intruder – Knocked the dog out. Knocked the dog out. Hit the dog, a Great Dane, hard enough that it knocked the dog unconscious. Uh, that's terrible. And it turns out that, yeah, there was a person in that crate down in the basement. <laughs> Sorry, I spoiled that. Sorry. No, man. that's okay. And uh, in that person-sized crate. And the reason that the dog really didn't like being down there was because he could smell a person. But anyway, yeah, so they find the crate, realize a person. That's a scary thing, actually, I think. That's really creepy. It is. That's extremely creepy to have. To... I kind of and it's the And it's about the third time. That their house has been invaded. Yes, again In this and again. one book. Like someone kicked in a door while they were having breakfast. There's people on the property. Yeah. Uh, someone came in in the middle of the night. Now there's someone who shipped themselves into the house. Yes. I kind of thought that if Fenton Hardy received a person-sized crate sent to his home, it was going to be Fenton Hardy inside being like, I had to mail myself home. 
Just because that What's would be for dinner? the weird thing that Fenton Hardy would do. <laughs> this is the turning point, though, in uh, Gertrude and Tivoli's relationship. Yes, because as soon as the dog is knocked unconscious protecting the family, yeah. Gertrude like adopts the dog. She, does. she um, does. I don't think Biff's going to get the dog back. She refers to him as, as this brave creature. This, such a stout-hearted protector yes. deserves a good meal. And then she gives him beef stew, which I'm like, again, that's not food for dogs. Mm-hmm. I think that's No, it could be. Yeah, I mean, it depends what you put in it. They decide they're going to go to New York and go see Zafar. Um, they take a day trip to New York City, which they do all the time. Yep. Do you know what happened here? Well, he just kind of, I mean, they they start to be suspicious about the stuff in the shop, don't they? But they don't get very far. No, he shares his shop space which another, with another like shopkeeper, Mr. Bogdan. Right, who they um, think might have been. Who's the American agent who manages Mr. Mm-hmm. Zafar's mm-hmm. Uh, stuff. And the, and he might have been eavesdropping on their conversation right. with Zafar. But Zafar is like he's clearly so again throwing suspicion off Zafar, yeah. and onto Bogdan. Onto Bogdan, and uh, he tells him he's like, okay, something has to has come up that has changed everything. Your father has to help me. He got him a note. He takes these threatening notes way more seriously than the Hardy Boys do. Yeah, he does. And the note says, "We have the gold head of Ramatan Four. We will sell it back to you for a hundred thousand dollars. Be that's, ready that's, with that's your ten answer. cents on the dollar. Ten cents on the dollar." Show this note to no one if you value your life. Okay, so he doesn't take it that seriously, the warning note. No. They think that somebody salvaged it illegally from the Kadawa, and they tell him to take the note to the police. And he's like, you think I'm an idiot? Then my life will be in danger. And I kind of get his point that this guy goes to the police and is like, I need police protection. They'll probably be like, no. <laughs> I just, you know, I feel like that's the, maybe he might get locked up. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And he's like, well, you, you clearly don't care that much. You showed the note to us. And he's like, that's different. Your father's not the police. Um, which is a good point he's no longer the police and then he gets a call immediately apparently the note was totally unnecessary right because he gets a phone call it's like did you get that note (laughs) it's like yes yes yes, I did and he's like okay well I have more information that we couldn't fit on the note (laughs) so I decided to call you and he's like "All right, so uh, we uh, let's see listen carefully small bills taking to Philadelphia airport public storage locker stand by those are the instructions so there's like, I'm like, we're going to Philly? We've got a whole ransom thing going on now. So they go through the display area of this. Let's see, in the quarter, they almost run into Fritz Bogdan. So they know yep. he that, was, he, that he was listening. He was. And they notice a tiger skin rug hung on one wall between dusty carpets and tapestries. Near the green Buddha, the painted face of an Egyptian mummy case, sarcophagus, stared back at them sightlessly. Both boys felt there was something sinister about the dingy place. Yeah. I mean, it sounds cool to me. Tiger skin rug. I'd like Buddhas, to hang out there. Mummies. And then they... Should they have see, started the story there. Yeah, that's true. They see um, Zafar's granite face chauffeur, and they're like, his face seemed familiar. And I was like, he's the guy in the beard who's been standing on your property. <laughs> I've read yeah. enough of these books that as soon as they say, he looks familiar, I'm like, the guy who was in the clear disguise earlier, that's him. That's him. They call their that's father. you know. They finally get a hold of Mr. Hardy at his hotel. Page 97, Suffering Snakes. Suffering Snakes, that's worth a shot. Take a shot, people. Yeah. Uh, that's as good as leaving lizards any day. He tells them that the Philadelphia airport thing is a good idea, or is a good clue. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that it leads, it connects with a bunch of other like clues that he has. Do they go back to Whalebone Island? I'm just, they're jumping all oh over the my place. Lord, yes, they do in the next chapter. They go back to Whalebone Island. They, get, oh. they return to Bayport, they get Chet, they get the sleuth, and they go out to Whalebone Island. And then I, I saw this. So they decide Joe would board the Crux ship alone. Right. Frank would return to Bayport, get Chet and the sleuth, and then proceed to Whalebone Island. Okay. After a quick lunch at a coffee shop, the boys split up, which is always something that I'm like, wait, don't. 
Because it's never good when the boys split up. It's the not. Plus, they didn't tell us what they had at that coffee shop. Right. I'm imagining it was a tuna melt or a patty melt. Yeah. I think something, an open face sandwich mm-hmm. of some sort. Uh, and then Frank that. Frank headed for LaGuardia Airport, and Joe went straight to the pier where the crux ship Petrol lay berthed. And uh, they split up, and Joe almost gets crushed by the boom. All right. Oh, yeah. He almost gets crushed by an oil drum or something immediately. Yep. And then a man rescues him, whose name is Captain, Captain Rankin. Rankin. And apparently there has been sabotage because the uh, the chine hook seems to have fractured, which I guess is what they were using to move those barrels of oil. Now, Never how, did they, how, like that how did they pull that off? How did who got on? They don't really pursue that. No, they don't. Maybe that wasn't sabotage. Maybe that wasn't an accident. That could have just been a, a weak chine hook. Yeah, I think that was. Okay, never mind. Not sabotage. Um, I mean, according to sea lore, yes. the chine hooks are one of the first things to go. First things to snap. you got to check those chine hooks, everybody. Folks at home, lesson from the pros. Yeah, and so he and Roland Perry, who uh, is one of the master divers, Joe, they become friends. And Perry is hot to get into it with Brock. I mean, he is Bach. So uh, Bach, yeah. Gus, Gus, Gus Bach. Bach. And they, um, the, he tells them like, why, why this is bad. He's like, oh yeah, do I know him? I know him. We were shipmates on a tin can once, the Svensson. Later on, we went through the Navy diving school together. When we finally got out of the service, we worked for some salvage out- for the same salvage outfit. I actually thought we were buddies, till the time I caught him trying to split my air hose. And he tells a story about how they were underwater doing something, and he turns around and Gus has a knife out like he's going to cut. And then I imagine it was like, oh, no, that's not what's happening. But he's convinced that he- Gus... For no reason, tried to murder him on a job. <laughs> Just out of the blue. I I am actually reading a, a little bit of a backstory subtext there. I okay. think I think these two had an affair. Had an affair for and sure. broke it off. Or one of them pursued it and the other one wasn't interested. And he and wasn't like, I got to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that kind of thing used to happen all the time, I, I bet. He probably wasn't even going to kill him. He was just going to cut his air hose, you know, give him a little startle and then haul him up. I um this made me think a little bit of airplanes like do you like gladiator movies but when he's like uh good old pearly early and he's like oh how did he get that nickname from his first initial and last name which like yeah you could have just guessed that but he's like that was part of it ever been in Greece and he's like no why over there you'll see Greek men fussing what they call worry beads they carry these beads and finger them all the time. Captain Early did the same thing, only he used pearls, like a nut job. <laughs> Just pearls that he could drop. Just He's on pearls. docks a lot, and by the by the seashore, you don't think you'd want to be. Anyway, um, but they realize, and they're like, oh yeah, we got him this uh, fancy cane that he could store him in. That was, that was nice. It was a nice gift. Cane. And I was like, and I was like, come on, boys, put it together. Put it together, and then they finally realize, oh, that's why people have been breaking into our house over and over again. Yeah. They think that we have a cane full of pearls. Yep. All the cane stuff that I just wrote earlier is like a bunch of boring cane stuff. Finally, the mystery of the cane is solved. Yes. Or is it? Or is it? Yeah, they're like, oh, my God, somebody's been trying to steal that cane from our house. Oh, they just meet up again. Great. Back on Whalebone Island. It's the first time they've ever split up and not like face life-threatening danger that the other one has to rescue. It was fine. Your concerns were for not. They do check inside the cane though once they're back together and it's empty. Yeah, there's no pearls, so they think that the bad guys maybe they got them. They got the they got the pearls from them when they were um, either the well they must have been the must guy have been the second there. time. Why break in? A, why mail yourself in a box if you've already got the pearls? <laughs> <laughs> I really like the idea of the crook sitting around and being like. 
I tried going in. I, I couldn't find anything. You're welcome to try. And then, but like, he's like, no, we can't just like sh- kick in the door again. They'll have some protection. Do they have like a guard dog or anything? No, they don't have a dog. <laughs> and then like, the yep, we do now. He's sitting, he's sitting in the crate in the basement and the dog is right outside the crate, just growling. Howling. This guy's got terrible life. Said he didn't have a dog. Said he didn't have a dog. That dog, I'm just going to have to run. Um, What what do you put in a, if you're going to mail yourself to someone's basement, what do you pack? Do you pack a little, a lunch and a water bottle? Something to pee into? How long are you going to be in there? I don't know. He sent himself, well, yeah, yeah, you know you're going to arrive like afternoon and you're going to be in there until everyone's asleep. (laughs) And who knows when everyone's going to be asleep. Okay. Do they go back to the cave? Yeah, they go back. Um, oh, this is where they find the cave. This is where they find the cave because they're scoping around. Chet can't take it anymore, and he kicks him right in the butt. Yeah, they they go to splash Chet <laughs> with some water. Chet kicks him in the butt so that he'll fall into the water, and just for once, he'll be the butt of the joke. But instead, he falls face first into the answer to into their the mystery, clue. Yes, which is a cave that I really hoped a hermit lived in. That yeah, we need a hermit. That it turned out that guy wasn't a ghost. Oh, that would have been a, good. That would have been better for your bingo too. But it's clearly like one of those weird places that you sometimes find when you're like hiking out in the woods where you're like, oh, a person's living here right now. Yeah. Uh, Or just walking down in Cherry Creek. Yeah, exactly. They don't really find a lot out in the cave. Nope. They just said, you know, maybe some fugitive from the law hid out here or some hermit who only wanted to get away from it all. (laughs) I like that. That's a positive spin. Maybe we just wanted to get away from the world on this sad, desolate rock out in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, which is the way to do it. Yep. Um, so they take their, the sleuth back out to the petrol, uh, the ship that they were, uh, where the divers are and the divers are going down to find the, they're trying to find the catalog. Finally getting to the diving. Which yes. Is, and the diving was so it. cool. Yeah. Uh, he led the boys around to the port side where the diving crew was standing under the command of Matt Shane. Here, the young sleuth met Perry's tender, a husky Negro named Sid Carter, who was manning the undersea telephone. Yeah. I, I had to make a note there because. They did point out Sid's ethnicity yeah. and his name and his job. He has no lines. No lines. Zero He's going to be like, oh, and by the way. There's a black man there's on There's a black man on board. He has no lines. Nope. And then they're like, yeah, Raleigh's been down there a really, really long time. And I was like, uh, I think he might be dead. How long has he been down? Does anybody know how long is okay and not okay? But when he does come up, he says somebody's already, the Corona, which was the ship that crashed into the Katawa, really smashed into her. He finds he's, – he's radioing from the deep, and he says there's a hole already cut in the side. So they know other salvagers have already been there inside the Katawa. Right. They found the shipwreck. They think that Savor sal- uh, salvage. Well, there's a lot of things going on here, okay? so A lot of things. So let's let's there, do some recap. Yeah. The whole point – like, Fenton was originally hired by the insurance company. To prove that this thing went down with the ship. Yes, that the bigger ship hit the smaller ship. Yes. And caused the sink. So and now there's treasure down there. But there's also treasure down there. Yeah. So then salvagers want to go down there and get it. Yes. But then also the thing that's this treasure down there is currently floating around in the black market. So it's not down there. No. But, but they still need to get the the dashboard equipment which proves the To prove, oh yeah, that's the important thing about why they want the the equipment from inside the Kadawa. If they can prove that the the heading and uh speed Yes. Was what they say it was. Then they yeah. can prove that it was an actual collision and not a, a, a purposeful insurance scam. Uh-huh. Right, right. Right. Okay. That's why they're trying to get that equipment. But all the equipment is already taken. Yep. Which, that confused me. But I think it's just to, it, to it, throw them off It the, confused everybody. But they do recap that. 
Yes, and they talk about how it was to throw us off the trail. They radio Captain Early to let him know about the cane. They radio him from the, the ship. And they tell him, like, hey, we found out about the cane. And he's like, oh, I don't keep pearls in the cane anymore. So that was just yeah. for nothing. That was for nothing. We Yeah, or so we think. The whole yeah. cane thing, the pearls in the cane thing, not a real deal. No. Yeah, and they're like, well, maybe somebody heard about it and was trying to steal my cane because they thought there were pearls in there, but that's like crazy. Those pearls, how many pearls can you fit in a cane? It can't be worth that much money. I like to think that it's like one of those transparent um, <laughs> like candy canes full of yeah, M&Ms. for sure. But it's like that. It's full cane size filled with pearls. So how, how much are we talking? I think you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars okay. worth of freshwater pearls. All right. Is it worth mailing yourself and breaking into his house <laughs> twice? And I don't know. You know, if it's full of pearls, I think it might be worth okay. all of this. All right. Fighting a dog, thinking you maybe killed a Great Dane, which I think that would just like oh, tear you up inside. They're like, dude, I had to kill a dog tonight. And, and I hit him with the cane that I was supposed to be stealing. stealing. This oh. is terrible. They go back to the cave to check it out more, see if they can find any more yes. clues. And then Gus Bach and his crew of baddies, his Nazi friend, uh, yeah. Kraus, is that his name? Something like that. Gus Bach shows up with a lanky, bald-headed man with tufted, sandy eyebrows. They're like, stow it, Perry. And they, they basically, uh, Perry and Gus Bach want to fight each other a lot. And then the bald-headed guy is like, nine Bach, I lost us. So he shouts at him in German, which I was like, uh, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> we do not want trouble. Yes. That's my... Uh, That's great. I love it. They, I think the bad guys just split, basically. Oh, Captain I, Rankin I, shows up, and he's like, you guys, stop it. Stop fighting. I think this is Bach's new boyfriend. This, oh, this the German sandy-haired guy. German dude? Yeah. And, oh, that's why it's especially painful for Perry. Perry's immediately ready to fight. Yeah, because he tried to cut his hose, and now he's off gallivanting around the seas. With other guys. With this other When Hugh said he German was the one guy. that wasn't available. Um yeah, anyway, everybody splits and goes back to their own ships. Yep. And they decide to go back down, dive back down. Is this when the boys dive down? I Well, I think they go down, but they're not allowed to go on board, right? No, but just the fact that they're like, it's an incredibly dangerous uh, mission. We're doing deep sea diving in a shipwreck. You boys can come down, but like you can't go in the shipwreck. But you can hang out like around the shipwreck. Yeah. And you're like, no, they shouldn't be down there at all. What if they touch <laughs> something and, and shift everything or... They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, they go down, no problem. They find out that the telegraph and tachometer are gone. Um, they have a whole recap chapter. and um, Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, which, yeah, double disappearance is the recap chapter. Oh, great. And so they just why discuss don't we check all in the... with Bingo uh, one more time, oh. see if we've had anything new. They haven't been tied up. Okay, I've got something. What you got? A submarine. Wait, no, I don't. Sorry. I have one called A Plane Ride Where Nothing Bad Happens. Yeah, so usually anytime they get in a plane, they've something been, bad happens. They've been to New York. Well, they took the train. They did? Yeah, they take trains to what New about York to Philly? Philadelphia. Both? Okay. Yeah. Actually, wait. One of them went to LaGuardia Airport to I fly know, home. I know. And he took a plane ride and nothing bad happened. So you can check that out. I got that one too. Explosion? Has that happened? Oh, yeah. That huge explosion, that that's attempted murder. That's explosion. right. I'm pretty close. Boys leave Bayport. If I had school... I would nail this one, so sorry. but I don't. We don't have it. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to complete it either. But I'm really close because if I if I got the respectful use of Spanish, I could. Um, that is a great one. They got back home, and Aunt Gertrude loves Tivoli now. Yeah, they're best friends, and I hope that she just keeps him. I hope he shows up again, but I'm worried that this dog is just never going to appear again. Yeah, and Biff's going to take him and then be like, "Oh, I got rid of him," and that's oh, all we're going to know. About that's Tivoli. really sad. Uh. Yeah, that that dog will never go on any cool adventures. He actually doesn't. He just stays at home with Aunt Gertrude. 
They become friends. Um, so Sam Radley calls, or he meets them at the Philadelphia airport terminal. He gets out and he tells them that when they opened the airport locker, they found a walkie-talkie and it said to listen in. And then Saturday night, they had to keep listening in the hotel room until Saturday night until they before they heard something. He told his dad to go Goes. to Market Street. Yeah, because go the, meet somebody. Well, yeah, because the walkie-talkie said, "Hey, where's where's uh, where's Mamet?" Yeah, and. Uh, and they were like, well, and Fenton said, I'm Mammoth's agent. You yes. can talk to me. And they led him down. They're like, come meet us. And then Sam didn't go with him as backup. No, he tailed I him. tried to follow him in another cab, but lost him in traffic. Bad detective. Yeah. Haven't heard a word from him since. You don't have shortwave radios? What, what's going on here? Everybody else has shortwave radios. But he thinks that somebody, that somebody got their dad. And they stay in a hotel. And they go to bed. And they immediately, like, they wake up in the night. And there's another prowler in their room. Another prowler. No safety. How many prowlers are there in this book? I, at least four at this point. Because there were two at Early's place before the boys even started this yes, adventure. Yes, there were uh, the two at the house in that one scene. Yep. Which was possibly the same Could guy. be the same person. The guy out on Whalebone Island, who again, possibly the same prowler. Yeah. But then you have the multiple break-ins to the house at night. That's like two more. And this then one this in one the, in the hotel. Yeah, this one in the hotel. There's like seven or eight prowlers. You guys are relentless. And I can, I, even after reading this book and, and going over it again, I'm not clear if all those were the same. All those per- were the same guy. For what purpose? I can't tell who was rob- trying to rob what now. From who? From whom? It's so disorienting. <laughs> He'll stop thief. Somebody jumps out of the window down the fire escape to the alleyway. What did he steal? Uh, he didn't get anything. He just he just had to do that so that he could leave them a clue about. Oh that. right right right. A note. Why would he all stop? <laughs> I think that it's great because he probably just woke up from a from a deep sleep and is confused about what's happening and thinks something's been stolen. Yeah. He's darting towards the window and he leaves them a note. No, a clue. Just a clue. Yeah. The, he drops a basically flyer. yeah like an invitation to an art art <laughs> opening. <laughs> and they're like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I love when they find that they say Bradley's looking around. He's like, "Did either of you throw this away? Did one of the Hardy Boys throw away a notice for an art auction sale?" <laughs> no, no. <laughs> like that might be a clue. Yeah, it's a huge clue. And that guy must feel like the biggest idiot in the world when he checks by. He's like, "Oh my god!" And they have the invitation to the art deal. Oh no. Or it's just another red herring, like, mailing them a treasure map and being like, I also love the idea of the criminals having that conversation where they're like, look, I bet we could mail them a treasure map with an X on it. <laughs> and just a bomb just leave a bomb the there. X, and they will go to it. It's That's the a... most clever understanding of how the Hardy Boys world That's works. True. Where they're like, this is the best attempted murder ever. <laughs> Thought it was a treasure? Nope. <laughs> when yeah. Joe wakes up, and sees him. He oh, sees his he silhouette. He recognizes him. But he can't figure out why he recognizes that guy's silhouette. Right. And then as he's drifting off to sleep again later, he's like, Fritz Bogdan. Bam. That's who I know. It's the guy who is Mehmet Zufar's American agent, the guy who was eavesdropping when Mehmet Zufar was telling him about uh, the, the, goal, the all the threats and everything. And they Definitely des- he's the bad guy. They decide to go over there. They go over there. Zufar is like, oh, I can't let you into his like building i i don't own his building he just sells my art there they're like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but here's the deal let us in there and uh, they don't go to the police and tell them that they think that prob- no they, how do they convince him to let them in there they're like we'll try to call first and they call and there's no answer like well we'll have to break in now <laughs> yeah he's just very true i can't i'm sorry i can't let you in there and he's like we'll call the police and get a warrant so joe does try to call that's gonna take forever joe 
Mm-hmm. And do the New York police cooperate with them as much as the Bayport police? I don't know. They're, but it, it, they it, are what, Fenton's former. But that is what convinces Zafar to let them in. He's like, no, don't call the police. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they don't, they're not like, huh? They're not like, that's okay. weird. Why don't you want the police here? No, because they love an adventure without the police. Yes. Basically, the police run in and the police firing guns and they're all hunkered down waiting for it to be over. The police don't help them. They yeah. help the police. That's, that's true. T- typically how that goes. So they're tearing around. They're looking to see if they can find the Pharaoh's head somewhere. In the dusty showroom, Frank paused and stared around despairingly. Once again, the faded, upright Egyptian mummy case caught his eye. On a sudden hunch, he strode toward it. Joe, Sam! His cry brought the others rushing over. Frank pointed to the several tiny borings in the case. These look like air holes. Together, the three pried at the mummy case until Joe found a catch. When Frank and Sam wrenched off the lid, the trio gasped. Wedged inside with eyes closed was the bound and gagged form of Fenton Fenton Hardy. Hardy. Yeah. I'm surprised. That's this, the last Now, I was part. really worried this time because they, Frank felt Mr. Hardy's wrist and found a weak pulse. That's not a good sign. A weak, no. That's like, not just knocked out. No, that's oh. clearly something's going on. With you call, you, you take him to the hospital immediately. No, they put him on a sofa in Bogdan's <laughs> office. And then he sees the green, uh, Joe's eyes bulge and he says, the green Buddha. He suddenly like realizes that the Buddha has like a discoloration at the neck of it. Right. And he's like, I think this Buddha needs his skull x-rayed. And he goes to twist its head off. And Zafar's like, Don't do that. Don't. You may damage the... Uh, and he's like, relax, relax. If it's a one-piece bronze, I can't damage it. And if not, and then he twists Just his, pries his head off. Head. It's good logic. Yeah. It turns out that uh, that was the lower portion of the neck, which was fitted inside the necklace, showed the, uh, none of the greenish bronze patina. Instead, it appeared to be hard-baked clay. And so they so clean they like, off let's all let's break clay. it. Yeah, they smash it, break the clay off of it, and inside is a priceless relic. Good thing that they smashed it. Finally. They took like a hammer to it. The golden pharaoh. Yes, they did. Yes. Pick up a hammer and chisel. They chisel off with their expert knowledge. You'd think you'd want like a curator at the art museum to be like, oh my god, who did this to this pharaoh mask? It's going to take a team of people. <laughs> To not damage the gold patina and the original paint that they baked that they baked in in clay. Yeah, no, just no, just chip it off with, whack uh, it with a chisel hammer. with a hammer and a crowbar. Um, but they see the golden pharaoh. It has a slender goatee. It's all very cool. A tiny vulture and yeah. cobra protruded side by side from the pharaoh's headdress. A long, slender goatee hung from the chin of the mask-like golden face. Yeah, Zufar is is stunned into silence, and Frank and Joe are awed by the sheer beauty of this centuries-old statue. Very cool. It gets, a, it gets an illustration, too. Yeah, and so they're, they're like, oh, my God, Bogdan was behind all of this. He's pulling one over on Zafar. Yep. An ambulance shows up to take – they did call an ambulance. Oh, good. Which Phew. is good. And they go to the hospital, and he, uh, Radley rejoins him, and he says, how's your dad? And Frank says, okay, although he's still unconscious. <laughs> the doctor says he was definitely drugged. He might not come out of the effect for hours. He's in a coma. And yet you say he's okay. <laughs> He'll be fine. He'll be fine. My dad's been through way worse than this. He gets knocked out all, all the time. time. <laughs> Whether by blunt force trauma or drugs, doesn't matter. He'll be fine. Yeah, it seems like he's been knocked over, knocked out so many times that somebody can like say his name real loud and he just faints. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah, they get home. They get, finally get home and Aunt Gertrude's made a bunch of food. Bacon and eggs. That's it. That's it. That's all we get. I know. No. They go back out to Whalebone Island. No, they go out to the petrol again. Yeah. They're going to go back to the to the diving ship. Which I love all the diving stuff. It's my favorite part of it. I still, and we still don't know at this point why the other boat is hanging around Whalebone Whale Island. Whalebone Island. Because the Kanawha didn't sink at Whalebone Island. It sank 
north of there by several kilometers. I see. So they, that's what they're really confused about is like they know and it looks like they've already broken into the salvage ship. Yep. So how could they have done that and why are they still hanging out by Whalebone Island? We get some straight up clues. They're talking to Perry, the great diver, and he's talking, telling stories about Captain Early. And he said that he was a real tiger in the war. He had four enemy ships to his credit in the Atlantic. On that cane we gave him when he left the Svensson, the quartermaster carved the latitudes and longitudes of all four sinkings. The Hardys stared at the diver. Yeah, and this is the part where it's like... What kind of cane? Like, you loved this captain. <laughs> they gave him the most ornate they cane did. ever. You can hide your pearls in there. It's, it's got, got all your legend. kills on it. Yeah. It's pretty badass. Um, yeah, he sank uh, yeah, German ships in the war. I like this. Chet knows them enough that when Sid Carter is fitting the diving helmet over Perry's head, Chet shoots a quizzical glance and he's like, what's up? You guys looked like crazy people when he said, when he mentioned the cane, <laughs> like your eyes all bugged out of your heads. And they're like, don't you get it? And he's like, the burglar wasn't trying to get pearls. He was trying to get the locations of those sinkings. And so when they go to look at the cane, they figure out one of them is right on, one of the things that they sank is right on Whaleboat Island. Right. That's why they're out there. Yeah. And, and... And this is the point where I'm like, okay, Captain Early. At no point did you tell us? You could, I mean, so many times could you have said Whalebone Island? Oh, yeah. Oh, I sank a killed many men there by bombing a U-boat. <clears throat> I, no. Our radar picked up that U-boat in the dead maybe of the... He, maybe he blocked that out, but, you know, because that's... I guess. Yeah, he's like having terrible flashbacks. Right. We dodged her torpedoes and sank with ash cans. Depth charges, that is. The enemy left an oil slick bigger than a circus tent. Then we found the debris the next morning. A certain kill. He's like, thanks a lot, bye. And he hangs up. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, so they sunk a German sub there. Apparently that's what they're diving for. But we don't exactly know why. Then Sid, who does have a line now, says... Oh, he does? does? Yeah, he's like... Oh, great. Um, Sid says there's an issue, and he says there's an explosion from down below. And he's like, was Raleigh hurt? And he said, uh, doesn't seem to be from what he said on the phone. We're just not sure what happened. He's on his way up now. So he said that he was down there, and a squid touched... Something. An explosive thing, some kind of explosive thing, and blew it up. What they really think was there was a booby trap mounted yeah. on the door to the hold. To the hold. I like the visual of the squid exploding too. Though. Yeah, I wrote squid explosion. <laughs> um, we should put that in the bingo. In the bingo, that, is that there could a come squid back. Explosion. They use gelignite, which I guess is that like stuff that burns Ooh, underwater, which is cool. super cool. And he's like, I would have touched it off myself, but uh, the squid blew it up first, so he didn't get stuck in there. And he says the That's boys lucky. grimaced. With a sudden loss of compression from a ruptured air hose, the diver would have been crushed to jelly inside his helmet by the ocean pressure. Yeah. I'm like, wow, this book is for children. And Perry's like, I know who did this. For show. It's the guy who broke my heart. It's my old boyfriend, Gus Bach. Gus Bach. <laughs> it's exactly his style. If I know anything, it's how Gus Bach wants to kill people. And it's either by cutting their airline or blowing them up underwater. So their boat can't be too far away because they just get into the sleuth at this point and yeah. go over to the other boat. And zip over. So maybe it's not kilometers. It's just north enough. Yeah. Still, that's close enough that you'd think that they were still looking for the Katawa. Anyway, they zip back to the Simon Salvor for a showdown. Let's see, Shane and Rankin don't want them to go, but Perry... Wants to come over and just beat the crap out of Bach. He's like, no, we're just going to ride over there. The, and, but the other two guys agree to come with him. Yep. They're like, we're not going to just watch you get your ass kicked by those, that other team of, of salvagers. <laughs> yeah. And everyone's pretty uh, pretty cool about it when they get on ship. And they were. Like, Where's Gus? We got to beat him up. But where is Gus? Trapped under the bottom of the You're ocean. too late. He's probably dead. 
Yeah, they're like, oh, well, good luck because he's been trapped on the bottom and he's lucky to see daylight ever again. <laughs> Huge twist. Yeah, big twist. Which, if he was just like hiding down below, I think that'd be great where they're like, too bad. No, he died. <laughs> <laughs> they would have. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah this is, not- and this is where Perry has an opportunity for redemption, which I, I remember there being a, a great redemption story in the last Hardy book. Oh, really? That I read. Yes. Do you remember what it was about at all? Um, well, it was it was pretty straight up. It was just okay. that the main bad guy was so moved by the the, the forthrightness and the, and the and the moral fortitude of the Hardy oh, Boys boy. <laughs> that that he that he, t- he confessed and <laughs> and professed his admiration for for Fenton and and, oh. and the wonderful boys. Well, that's nice. It was wonderful. <laughs> but you know what? I gotta say, you boys are just great. Uh, well, Gus Bach is trapped, and uh, no one on his crew seems that upset. They're just like, I don't know what to tell you. Yep. He's going to die. That's and, a dangerous business. And Perry gets on the radio, and he's like, hey, Perry. Uh, hey, Bach, this is Perry. Are you in trouble down there? And Bach's like, what do you care? And they have like a little – have a little – They have know, a moment. You, they, you know that they're saying more than they, what's on there. They are. Uh, and he says that he's pinned, and he's like, come on down here. Help me feed the fishes, which I guess is some sort of inside joke. I don't really know. But uh, anyway, they decide they're going to go down. Yeah, the captain says, too dangerous. You can't go down there. And Perry down. says, then what are you going to do? Let him die? Perry flared angrily. See, he's very— Yeah, he's emotionally upset. He yeah, is... and, the, and the German dude's not doing anything. Yeah. Oh, that's got to suck. He, he's got to feel so awkward right now. He really does. <laughs> they're going to dive down. This is, what, this is what happened, the U-boat thing. We find out what that was about. Right. They're diving down there to try to get into a U-boat. Yeah, so and this is the part. So let me ask you this: so that okay. the the Nazi, mm-hmm. he was on this U boat. Yeah, it got bombed. He got off. He lived in the cave on Whaleboat Island. Okay, I'm gonna just. I'm not sure. Okay, 1945. It's a, it's kind of the right time period. I guess you never knew it happened so close to Whaleboat Island. But first, I want to go through the really cool scene where they Great. take these pins, and the boys yeah. go down with Perry, and they manage to attach these iron needles with hoisting wire to the sub. Ooh. And then as they like crank the sub up, Perry and Ryan like get in and get Bach and get him out. It's yeah. And they like all almost get trapped down there. It's great. It's all a ton of really fun underwater. Mm-hmm. And uh, they rescue him and they rescue him. Yeah. They save his life. No. Frank said to Bach, how about telling us what you fellows are after aboard the U-boat? The diver opened his mouth to reply, but Kraus cut him off sharply. Tell him nothing, Bach. Nothing do you hear. Shut up, Kraus. Bach retorted. These guys saved my life. I'm not only going to tell him, we're going to cut him in, see? Ignoring Kraus's protests, he turned back to the boys and Perry. You know what's down there in that sub? 500 grand in American currency. That's what a cool half million. Chet's eyes grew as big as saucers, and the Hardys were just as startled as their chum. A half million? How do you know? Perry asked Bach. Krausier was a torpedo man on it. Bach went on to explain that in the closing months of World War II, a group of top Nazis had fled Germany aboard a U-511 with a fortune in American currency. Heading where? To South America? Frank broke right in. Right. Until steering trouble and dogged pursuit by Allied subkillers took them far off course. The U-boat had then hove to off Whalebone Island for repairs one night and sent a reconnaissance party ashore. Kraus got separated from the party and was stranded when his mates were suddenly called back to the ship. Because of the Svensson. Chet spoke up. Bach nodded. The Germans sighted Captain Early's destroyer. Then the Svensson engaged the U-511 and sank her, but Kraus thought he got away. 
So Krauss was the red-bearded apparition who scared the wits out of Tang, the lighthouse keeper. Put in Joe. Bach chuckled. <laughs> Bach oh, chuckled. whatever. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's Are we it. done? <laughs> yeah, that's enough of that. I just love all of that stuff. It's and amazing. That, like, escaped Nazis. So, 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 but Krauss is a Nazi Krauss. and he is the ghost yes. uh, that harassed the Tang in the 1940s. Yeah. And, and they don't care. They don't care. He's still part of the salvage team. They're treating him. That's why it feels like this must have been an updated thing for World I think War One. So because World War One, it's like I fought in World War One. I. I was on the German side, and you're of course like, you were. Oh yeah, you're like yeah. Well, you're German. They made you. In World War Two, it's like I was a Nazi. Yeah. You're like it's just it's so dark that they don't like. Well, you're probably guilty of some war crimes. Do you want to come with us to the police station, <laughs> Mister Krause? Do you have papers? <laughs> papers, please. Um, yeah, so they. But uh, everybody's friends now. They're going to cut. Everybody's them in. friends now. They're going to cut. They're going to cut the Hardy Boys and the other salvage company in on this quarter million. Which is dollars. a great ending to the story. The end. The end. Except. Whoops. Oh, they they find in the uh, Kadawa. They eventually manage to dive into it, get into the hold. Oh, good. After the Bach thing, and Bach has gone on his own way. Okay. His salvage team went off to do their own thing. Keep working on the submarine. They go back to try to see if they can find. Whatever is in the hold, the hold that they booby trap, that somebody booby trap, and it shouldn't be a gold head at this point because no. we've got the gold head. We already do, but they find the golden like, pharaoh head again, and they bring it up. Oh, they they immediately check it to see if it's real. Is it real? It's not real. I didn't think this that. one is gilded lead, and then they hear voice up on the deck. There's tear gas. People are firing guns. It's all crazy. Mayhem breaks out, and they're being attacked. By Mehmet Zufar and Fritz Bogdan. And I was like, oh, dang it, Mehmet. I thought you were not going to be a bad guy. I, yeah. thought, I was like, we're so close to the end. But no, I should. I just got to stop expecting And he was it. in cahoots the whole time. So why was he so actively pursuing Fenton Hardy as his detective? detective? When they were going to have to knock him out and drug him and put him in a sarcophagus. Twice? Twice. <laughs> I don't understand any of that stuff. Why did they try to get Fenton Hardy involved at all? They should have tried. They're like, no matter what, let's not get a detective involved. I wouldn't think you would. You'd want to get a crappy detective. There's yeah. a crappy detective in Bayport named Oscar Smuff. Is there? Oh. Yeah, and he's, he showed up a couple of times. And really, when they, he should have been like, who's the worst detective in town? Right. And they would have been like, Oscar Smuff. And he, they would have been I'm like, hiring oh, that guy. Oscar Smuff. Yeah. Uh, but Oscar Smuff would have just fallen ass backwards into solving the mystery some other way. You know, he probably would have ended uh, up dead with all these people out there. Uh, it's, the stakes went up. This reminds me of, of one of my favorite movies, which is uh, The Life of Quack with Steve yes. Zizou. I love this battle scene here. The, uh, especially this line, this is piracy. Piracy and murder. You'll all pay for it with your life. It's just like we're being hijacked. <laughs> but the boys have the perfect strategy yeah. for uh, holding off certain death. They just ask questions because the boys have a superpower where if they ask someone a question, that person has to answer they the have question, to. even if it's incriminating, even if they're in a hurry. And so all they have <laughs> with is tear like, gas blowing around the deck, <laughs> yeah, but they're like, eyes streaming. Why did you go to the house that night? And he's ah. like, ah, oh, the reason we went to the house and they go through every yeah. point of the story. Tying up every single loose end. But he's really gloating. I mean, it's not, is, it's, yeah. you know. But the boys, it seems like to me like they were just trying to stall for time. But they don't know anyone's coming to save them. No. And their plan was, Mehmet's plan was to have the real Pharaoh's head. In the Buddha. In the Buddha. Sell that on the black market. Check. Take a fake one. Put it in the Kadawa that will Ship sink. it to New York. Ship it to New York. 
that boat sinks. Yeah, so but he didn't know it was going to sink. He didn't know it was going to sink, no. But that was, a, that was the second thing that happened. So he's like, oh, well, now I have an opportunity get the insurance. to get the insurance for it. But then he also... Still has the gold head. Has the gold head already that he's going to sell. So he's going to... But, but the, now he's, the boys have screwed it up so bad because they know that one of these is going to be fake regardless. Yeah. He, if he just wouldn't have showed up, if he would have never shown up, because he knows the one that's fake. He knows which one is fake and which one is real. That's right. So it, why did he come out here? And why fake a ransom note for $100,000 100, to himself? What? <laughs> why did he set up that whole thing? If he would have just not told anybody, they, the divers would have gotten down there. They would have found the fake one. Oh, he needed to recapture the fake one. He, he did, did need to recapture the That's fake why. one. That's why. He needed to Because get... now that they knew that the real one was out there, he needed to make sure that nobody thought. Yeah, he needed to get that and sell it. My so... head is spinning. I know. He needed to get the fake one back, sell it, so that he could keep the real one. That's what he needed to do. Ah, and then, yeah, yeah. That makes more sense, I think. Oh, my God. I don't know. But it's then why crazy. get the insurance involved? Anyway. And a detective. Why hire him? He's obviously a master criminal because he's, he's... He's paid off the radio man, Harry Agner? I don't believe it. And I'm like, I don't remember Harry Agner. No, I, never, I don't remember meeting Must him. Must have been cut from the final book. But while they're tied up, at the very last second, Gus Bach and his buddies... Yes! ...storm the ship and beat up the bad guys. And I'm like, oh my god, there was a full character arc. Yeah. Gus Bach went from kicking in the door of their house at breakfast time, <laughs> saying he was going <laughs> to kick their dad's ass... <laughs> To saving yep. their life from certain death from an Egyptian antiques dealer. Yeah, and, and bringing his, them oh, half yeah. of his stash. Half of his stash, which they open to look at that sweet, cool, soaking under the water for several years, half a million dollars. And what, it's fake? Yeah, the heart, well, <laughs> they open it, they're <laughs> stoked, half a million dollars, and two teenage boys go, yeah, it's probably fake. <laughs> and they're like, oh, they're like, yeah, how, you're how right. How would you even know? And, and he doesn't even, like, touch it. Because if he would have touched it, it would have been all wet and stuff. But he looks at it and he's like, oh, we once helped our dad in a case involving counterfeit money and learned a few pointers about detecting phony currency, which actually did happen in one of these books. Where nice. he's like, the way you could tell a fake fake dollar bill and they walk through some stuff. One way is the paper itself. I'll bet anything this isn't the same composition as paper used for American money. Boom. Boom, just crushed. <laughs> this Rock is, stare, glassy eyes. He could have told them later. The guy just saved their life. Yeah, they could have been like, yeah. And then like, oh, unfortunately. I'm really sorry like, to tell I you. I kind of expected Gus to just shove that kid in the water. <laughs> At that I mean, point. Like, Let's hit it. Let's he, get it. Both he and Perry would just. <laughs> what a bunch of saps we were. All that trouble we went to. And the dough turns out to be fake. Kraus could only shake his head and mutter. Ach du lieber Himmel. Uh, and I was like, what? Something about Himmel? I don't, I don't know what that means. Should we look it up? Yeah. Octu Lieber Himmel. Heavens. Heavens. Good heavens. heavens. Hey, were the boys tied up during that? Yes, they were tied up. I'm checking on my bingo card oh, here. I, I got, got that. that. Well. That was a gunfight. Yeah, this is basically the end. I mean, they... That, that was a gunfight. I'm checking that. Submarine, yes. got that. Sub, yeah, we're getting a bunch here. Submarine, gunfight, boys tied up. I got a lot of boxes, but I did not get a bingo. I got, I got four in two directions. Oh, my God. But I'm blocked by school. Didn't happen. And I'm blocked by a vagrant with mental health issues. <laughs> oh, it's too bad. Those Either are really of those... fun, too, in the books. What yeah, you... I don't think that Krauss has mental health issues. No. But he was a vagrant for quite a long time who lived in a cave, made no attempt. Well, I mean, he was a Nazi. He was a, he, he was a Nazi. He was an escaped Nazi. He was a torpedo guy? Was he the torpedo guy? Yeah, he was guy? a torpedo guy. So he was probably guilty for the deaths of many Americans. Yeah. But... He also clearly had no interest in rejoining the war effort. He made no effort to go no. back to Germany. He well, just was like, I'm going to just be a, a 
a hermit for a I'll while. I'll be a ghost, and then I'll, I'll and then I'll be a salvage guy on a salvage rig with uh, a guy who who was also in the, in the army in the yeah. navy. It's a, a little. It's just a little strange. It's a strange, but I really appreciate having a Nazi I, in the book, but then somehow having the Nazi not be the bad guy of right. the story. Yeah, I think I think Kraus and Perry and and Gus mm-hmm. all. There's some sort of. I think they all went off to New York after that. And, great, and had a great old time. Yeah, that sounds fun. That's a nice ending. Well, that was a hell of a book. Wow, just wow. slamming. Wow. Um, what? Any final thoughts or? <laughs> Any final notes that you missed or anything? Let's see. I, you know, I didn't appreciate not hearing about what they ate. No, that was weird. Uh, I thought there was an extra fat jokes. Uh, but, you know, if you weigh the number of fat jokes against the number of mysteries that they had to yes. get into and then it was solve, actually, it's pretty even. I can't even think of how many mysteries there were in this book. No. Almost every chapter introduced a new mystery. Some were abandoned. <laughs> Some were not tied up until the very, very end. Uh <laughs> Well, this was so much fun. Do you have anything you want to plug right now? Uh, at any rate, new yeah. episodes. Watch it at any rate. Great. Well, thank you so much, Adrian. Thanks, Charles. Um, we are at uh, St. Paul's on Colfax, St. Paul's Tavern. Um, how long has St. Paul's been here? Uh, since November of last year. We opened on Halloween. It uh, seems like you guys popped up pretty quick. Yeah, we kind of came up out of nowhere. Uh, we didn't have a sign for a long time, so we were kind of the best kept secret of Colfax for a yeah. little while. And, uh, then you went and ruined it with your beautiful sign. Okay, yeah, with our beautiful uh, sign lit with a 60-watt bulb. Okay. So we are looking to get that sign with a little bit more power eventually. Oh, okay. You don't want to, you don't, you're not trying to stay a secret? No, no. We're not, no no we're bar not is cool. trying to stay a secret. <laughs> not that cool. Not we did, cool. we did do an interview once at a hidden bar, and their whole thing was to not have us refer to them as speakeasies because that's illegal. So we just have to <laughs> yeah. keep saying hidden bar, and that's, that's not as But that's even less cool than speakeasy. Yeah. So, um... Do you enjoy making cocktails? Uh, I'm a big bourbon and rum guy. Okay. So I like, uh, I was into rum for a long time. And then I finally, when I started working here, I started to get into bourbon because we have a really good selection of the stuff. And then uh, I started kind of, kind of got my uh, game down with the old fashions, which is, uh, sounds like a pretty easy drink to make, but it's actually surprisingly easy to fuck up because you can always put in way too much syrup and then cover up the flavor of right. bourbon, or you can just not put enough stuff in there or use the use weird ingredients trying to be creative and just make a horrible drink that no one's ever going to want to sip So on. that actually sounds like a perfect opportunity. Would you walk me through how you make an old-fashioned? Yeah, yeah. Tell you what, you want me to make one for you while that, you're sitting here? That would be great. <laughs> okay. You got your highball glass here. And so the two most important ingredients are orange peel and uh, really, really good Angostura bitters and the right amount of sugar. So usually the traditional way is to do a sugar cube and then put the uh, bitters on top of the sugar cube. Right. But we don't have cube sugar. We just use uh, simple simple syrup. So start out, we use uh, four rows of bourbon is our well. So two ounces of bourbon, two dashes of bitters. People always get confused about how much a dash is, and you're like, it's self-explanatory. Literally one dash. It's measured. It's, it measures it's like, itself. It's like these little. It's like yeah, these exactly. Speed four. It's three seconds is exactly one ounce. And then uh, the traditional way is to do like a half ounce of uh, uh, simple syrup. I think that's too much. So I take this. I pour about a three-second little dealy in there. And then one of the most important things you can do is to express the peel over it, so you get those really nice uh, concentrated essential oils. 
right over it. Nice aromatics. Yeah, run it alongside. There you go. Put a little bit of ice in there, not too much. You don't want to water it down. It's just going to be straight bourbon for the most part. And then make sure you get the entire glass covered in peel. Stick that uh, nice fancy peel in there. And then stir it up. There you go, boss. That's it. That is gorgeous. Well, that, that will be the cover. It's got a beautiful color. It's got a nice orange color. Oh. And the and I didn't have to watch you like mash a maraschino cherry no, into it. No, yeah, we like, don't really do that. I mean, that's purist, I guess we'll do it that way. But okay, I maybe. I, 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 I think it's too much. I always, I always want a really nice old fashioned, and I always get one that's incredibly sweet. So you're yeah. a man after my own heart when I see you just do that just small a, amount just of simple syrup. Just to, just to put out the uh, the hottest part of bourbon. So, what's your favorite part about being about working in a bar on Colfax? Um, I mean, honestly, it's just a really. I've always wanted to bartend, and uh, when this place opened up, so I was working at uh, you know where St. Mark's uh, Coffee Shop yeah, is yeah. down in Seventeen. Sure. Yeah, so I was working there for a little while, and there's uh, the guy who owns Seventeen Street Liquors on the corner, a uh, little Laotian dude named Ty. Okay. He owns this place. I mean, I know that liquor store. Yeah, yeah, I know yeah, the guy. So yeah. You know the liquor store. You know Ty. And um, he comes in all the time to my coffee shop and just helps himself to coffee. And he's a great guy. I mean, we've known each other for a couple of years since I've been working there. And I heard rumors that he was starting up a bar. And uh, just li literally one day he comes in and he's like, hey, you want to bartend? And I've never bartended before. Like, okay. I, I, I drink a lot. I, I, like to, I like to have a few drinks on the end of a shift and on the weekend. But uh, I never bartended before. So I was like, yeah, you know, shit, I'll, I'll give it a try. I, how hard can it really be? Like, yeah, <laughs> I know, I know, bad bartenders that have been working in the same bar for years. As somebody who has both bartended and served coffee, mm -hmm. I have people who were much more particular about their coffee than they were about their cocktails. It's true, it's but true. there's a lot of crossover there. Yeah, because like after a couple of uh, even okay cocktails, you're not really going to care anymore that much. You know, no. like you're, you're four, you're four shots of bourbon deep. You're not yeah, going to care. You don't care how exactly your you know, old fashioned is going to be made. Speak, um, speaking of which, yeah. before I move on, because yeah. like I always say. I'll pretend like I haven't been like wanting to drink this the entire time. Mm -hmm. um, that is so good. Excellent. Perfectly balanced. Thank That's you. fantastic. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, so yeah, I, I just I jumped on board. He started this place up. Um, I mean, that was it. I, I just That's I, awesome. I've always wanted to do it, and it's you know, it's honestly it's one of those jobs where you can go to any dirt dirt hole town in America, get a job in bar like that. As if a guy, as a guy who learned. To bartend in a little dirt hole town in America <laughs> called Shattered, Nebraska. Okay. I, uh, I I know exactly the deal. My, my thing was um, I was living in Denver. My sister was living in Shattered. I didn't have a job. She said, come up here for a week. I'll teach you how to bartend. Yeah. And then it was like, that was it. Yeah. You know, like I was bartending after that for yeah. four years. Uh, yeah. And it's one of those skills. Once you got it, mm -hmm. you learn the basics of it. It's so adaptable. Yeah. So, um, how are you a native? Are you from Denver? So I'm from North Dakota originally, but I moved oh, here right. when I was like two. Okay. So I've been here. So for you're like, as local as I'm, most. Yeah, I'm over to two years here in uh, Colorado. So okay. Yeah, I'm that's local. local that's yeah. enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're uh, we're from South Dakota. Oh, and, really? Um, part? Uh, the Black Hills. Okay. Uh, yeah, down on the on the west side of the state, and we always say like one, they split the states the wrong way. They should have been east and west. There's a river that runs through both states. <laughs> that's, that's true. That's true. But people have always asked us if there's rivalry between South Dakota and North Dakota. And I would say there's not enough of us that's, to yeah, really... that's exactly it. It's like... like we gotta stick it's together. It's like two-on-two -two basketball. Like, yeah. it's, it's not really enough to really, like, get a big like, get a big, get deal a big going. rivalry. Yeah. Going. 
But um, the thing is, like, I was actually I was actually living in Bowbridge, okay, South Dakota. My dad was in the Indian Health Service. Um, oh, my mom worked in the Indian Health Service. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, my dad was a dentist. My mom was a pharmacist. No, that's very cool. Um, so yeah, so the nearest hospital was the next, literally the next state up, like fifty miles. Oh, okay. Bismarck. That was the nearest hospital. Oh wow. There's there's there that kind of a, a weird story. Um, as we're, I don't, I don't know if this is true because every family has like their own lore about like oh yes things like that. So apparently, when I was being my, when my dad was driving my mom to the hospital to to kick me out, um, apparently there was like a house on fire on the way, and my dad had to stop and like rescue people out of that burning house. And then like a little ways down the road, there was like um, a Sioux, a family of like Sioux tribe people that was like in a ditch and didn't have any coats and he had to like stop and take care. I don't know if that's remotely true whatsoever. Yeah. Like, well, it's a good, it's, it's a, a good, good story. story. Like, yeah, it's, it's good. I'm going to say there are a few things that would make me not like feel the need to stop and help somebody who is stuck in a situation, but a pregnant woman probably probably yeah. definitely be a, I'd be like, I'm so sorry. We have to go. But like, here's the thing. Like I actually would kind of believe that cause I was born in the middle of December. Okay. So I could see, like, if there was a if there was a car, this is like in 84. Yeah, like, you're like, oh, these people might, these people might die. Right. So, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, maybe, like, it's a little more, like, if it had been, like, July, but, like, oh, shut, shut up, Dad. You're, it's, mm-hmm. stop, stop padding your part. But uh, it was in the middle of December. Hey, that's it, awesome. it entirely could have been. Uh, I, I remember, uh, I remember vividly some, uh, it being very desolate up there and very cold and uh, everything was a long way from everything else. So, man, who knows? Maybe... Maybe I didn't have a cool what a, birth stories. What a uh, perfect description of the of the North and South Dakota area. Oh, man. <laughs> Just God's country open. up there. It is absolutely yes. God's country. Yeah, nobody Beautiful. lives there but him. Um, yeah. The uh, So, back to, to St. Paul's. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the name. You're on St. Paul and Colfax. Yeah, no relation to uh, St. Paul City. Okay. No, yeah, I didn't really think none. so. I kind of figured it was just the street that you're on. Yeah. But it makes it really easy to remember where this place is. Absolutely. If you're on St. Paul and you go towards Colfax, you'll find it. Yeah. People uh, always ask me where it's at. It's like, well, it's St. It's it's Paul and Colfax. Yeah, it's not... Uh, so, you said that you opened on Halloween? Yeah, so we opened on Halloween. was our first, like, official day open. Okay. But and you didn't have your sign yet? Didn't have the sign. Uh, we really didn't do any advertising that I know of. How did it, how did it go? Well, actually, it was pretty fortunate because it was on Halloween so all the parents were taking their kids up and down Colfax to do the uh, trick-or-treat. That's a lot of good word of mouth. Parents walking by being Exactly. And they were bored out of their skulls taking these like little rugrats to each place getting candy. They finally see a place that they can stop off and get a little treat for themselves. So we ended up being like Packed the house the first night. That it was is like, great. We're only uh, allowed to have forty-seven people. I think they have like fifty-five. I think we kind of pushed the legal limit there. But well, that's, well the door slide. open. So I'm the door. Gonna, I'm going to say yeah. for the record, some of them were little, outside. A little bit of spilling out. Yeah, yeah. Not with their drinks. No, okay. of course not. No. Everything, Perfect. everything is perfect <laughs> on the on the up and up. Uh, well, that's awesome, man. Uh, uh, I don't have a whole lot of other questions. Have you ever read a Hardy Boys book? I've never read a Hardy Boys book. Uh, I used to read the Boxcar Children. Okay. Yeah. Very similar, um, very similar group, like yeah, style of writing, kind of the stuff. Babysitters Club kind of stuff, kind of that like late '80s, early '90s, like young adult serial stuff. Yeah, on. like uh, Goosebumps too. Yes, Goosebumps. Goosebumps. Oh my god, Goosebumps is the shit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In the '90s, uh, the Hardy Boys rebooted themselves. Actually, I think in the '80s, as like the Hardy Boys case files. Okay, and they tried to like make the books more serious. So, okay, so, so it went from, like tracking serial killers. Yeah, like, so know, it went from them being like, we got to bust these bandits yeah. to like 
Someone's you know, strangling cats in the neighborhood. Exactly. Or like, Frank, cycle. hand me that Uzi. You know, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's yeah, a big yeah. part of that. Well, um, it's been so nice talking to you. Thank you so much for letting us just pop in and uh, you. So Absolutely. Great. Come on in to St. Paul's a Tavern on the corner of, well, not really on the corner. St. Paul and Colfax. St. Right Paul and Colfax. Right next to uh, Groundswell Dispensary. You probably know where that is. Okay, great. The Hardy Boys Drink Book Podcast is produced by Jack and Charles Wesso. It is a part of the Panelism Network. Our music is provided by Danny Overby, and our graphic design is by Kristen Hallstrom. Special thanks to Adrian Bishop and Sam Nordstrom at St. Paul's Tavern on Colfax. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to tune in next episode for The Hardy Boys Drink Book number 18, The Twisted Claw, featuring Brian Cusick.